the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing Clark Hilton Engineering. And uh, glad to have you with us. Today we'll share a classic conversation with Peter Jasek. He's the author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll uh, take a look at uh, some of the, the day's news uh, throughout the first hour of today's program. Well, the push to replace the Interstate 5 bridge is far enough along that officials have released a timeline for the design and the construction of the new bridge. Now, I know we've been here before and you might be a little bit skeptical. Is this really going to happen? Well, it's no small project to replace a bridge that's part of a major interstate freeway. It connects Oregon and Washington across the mighty Columbia River. But the effort is on the um, interstate bridge replacement program. And I guess that's meaningful. The organization representing both states has been working on a new bridge building plan for more than a year. I would have thought for years, but I guess this particular group has been working for more than a year. Well, it recently released a timeline that would have a bridge design in place by next May and construction starting in mid-2025. Well, an interstate bridge commuter said that uh, she's ready for something better, traffic on the I-5 bridge. And maybe uh, some of you experience this on a regular basis or on a, an occasion. Uh, it's really um, a bad commute. Um, this uh, particular uh, resident Sharifa Al-Khatib says that she's been commuting across the interstate bridge for 18 years. Uh, along with the awful traffic jams, the existing bridge has little to offer mass transit, pedestrians or bicyclists. Well, um, Laurel Porter, who's with KGW, asked the U.S. Transportation Secretary if federal funding would help replace it. Uh, if that's uh, pending in the infrastructure package that's much debated these days, he gave a positive but a qualified answer in the interview that uh, aired on Straight Talk on KGW. Uh, he said, well, we didn't uh, build the infrastructure package on a project by project level, but it certainly is the kind of project uh, that we have in mind when we talk about improving America's aging infrastructure. In other words, we have no idea. Uh, replacing the interstate bridge is estimated to be about three point five to $4.5 billion project. That's the uh, total cost of the infrastructure, or at least one of the projects. Uh, Project Administrator Greg Johnson is confident about the help uh, he's going to get to pay for it. We believe, in fact, we are sure that our bridge in... Uniquely uh, is uniquely positioned to attract federal dollars to help get this thing built. When the president and the secretary talk about building back better, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Now, again, they're planning on starting the whole thing in 2025. What administration will be in the White House at that time remains unknown. So we'll see what happens next. We've been hopeful in the past and things fizzled. So. We'll just see. Well, four Portland churches uh, have been vandalized in the span of about six weeks. At least one incident involved a group protesting the recent discovery of unmarked graves in primarily Catholic run schools in Canada, while other instances appear to be the work of uh, disgruntled teenagers and individuals with general anger toward the church. 
Well, in June, vandals uh, lit fires and wrote graffiti on the ground at St. Patrick in northwest Portland. A month later, additional graffiti appeared on the historic church's wooden front door. On the 26th of June, a stained glass window was broken at northeast Portland's St. Andrew. And less than a week later, at St. Francis of Assisi in southeast Portland, a group of protesters, including families with children, left red handprints on the church door, columns and steps. Then late July the 11th or early uh, July the 12th, Holy Redeemer in North Portland had its doors spray painted with an anarchist symbol and an obscene critique of colonialism. Well, throughout the United States this year, there's been increased vandalism, much of it protesting colonialism and white supremacy in Portland. City officials reported complaints about graffiti at various locations were up nearly 400 percent since the pandemic began. Well, churches and religious statues are among the, the targets nationwide. And over the Fourth uh, of July weekend, vandals defaced a statue of uh, the Sacred Heart of Jesus at a basilica in North Carolina. In Canada, dozens of churches have been torched or vandalized this summer following the discovery of more than a thousand unmarked graves at former residential schools for indigenous children. Most of the schools were operated by the Catholic Church. Well, Canada Day, which is the first of July, uh, which is when uh, many uh, Canadians opted to replace celebrations with large uh, vigils, um, much like here, s- focusing on other things. One of the vandalism cases occurred amid a Portland protest. Well, the poster um, advertising the event described it as a silent march and vigil to honor the indigenous children and survivors of the U.S. and Canadian residential boarding schools. During the uh, evening protest, an estimated 200 people gathered to watch a movie, hear speeches and Walk through the neighborhood that includes St. Francis, a parish that long has ministered to area homeless through its dining hall. But that didn't make any difference at the church. Protesters stopped and children were encouraged to dip their hands in red paint and place them on the doors and concrete. Protesters left a sign on the church steps that read your schools had playgrounds. Ours had cemeteries. Father George Kuforgi, the pastor of St. Francis, said he sympathizes with the anguish and sadness the protesters expressed, but was distressed at their need to vandalize. Have you uh, have you protest? Yes. But to vandalize the church, a community that has nothing to do with the graves. That bothered me, he said. Members of the parish cleaned off most of the paint, but some remains. Protests are a constitutional right, but vandalizing property is a crime. Uh, Greg, uh, Lieutenant Greg Parshley a spokesperson for the Portland Police Bureau said, but that uh, continues to be the trend that we live with. Well, the street protests uh, took place across Cuba on the 11th of July. Protesters there in the Little Havana neighborhood of Miami expressed solidarity. Uh, a few days after um, Hurricane Elsa swept across the uh, center of the island, Christians of all denominations there joined in a nationwide day of prayer and fasting for their country on Wednesday, January 7th. Well, the call was made after months of increasing tension on the island, severe scarcity of food and medicine, and as the number of COVID-19 infections began to rise precipitously and the once um, lauded health care system threatened to collapse. Church leaders of all denominations reported that they were increasingly under surveillance, had been interrogated and threatened. Four days later, on the 11th of uh, July, it was a Sunday in a town outside Havana. People spilled into the streets. They marched peacefully and enthusiastically, calling for freedom and chanting Patria y Vida, Homeland and Life, the title of a hit song released by a pro-democracy Cuban hip-hop artist earlier that year or this year, and a twist on the Cuban Communist Party slogan, Homeland or Death. 
They shouted in unison, we are not afraid. The demonstration was recorded and shared live via social media by participants and onlookers. And within hours, similar protests involving thousands of people sprang up in cities and towns across the island. Well, the spontaneity and the magnitude of the protest, the likes of which have not been seen in Cuba since the triumph of the revolution in 1959, caught the government off guard. The president went on television and made an explicit call to violence, telling the population that he was giving an order to combat and called for true revolutionaries to go into the streets and reclaim them by force. The military, the police, state security agents, both in uniform and plain clothes, flooded into the streets, beating protesters and detaining hundreds. We're talking about Cuban Christians connecting prayers to protests. More on that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Peter Jasek. He's the author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. That's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I was talking before the break about Cuban Christians connecting prayers to protests. Well, the total number of Cubans detained or disappeared is still pretty unknown, but continues to climb. Uh, while a few have been released, most remain detained, incommunicado in prisons, police stations, state security facilities. Some have even described concentration camps in communities. Well, most family members of the detainees have reported that the government of uh, plans to charge them with incitement to delinquency with the uh, aggravating factor of doing so during the public calamity of the pandemic. Threatened uh, prison sentences range from eight to 20 years. So it's very serious. Well, because of the unplanned nature of the protests, those who uh, went out with this into the streets, rather, were from all walks of uh, ordinary life. Regular Cubans, young and old, male and female, people of all faiths and none. And while some human rights and pro-democracy activists joined the marches, lots of them stayed home, concerned that the government would use their participation as an excuse to condemn them to long prison sentences. Well, church leaders face the same dilemma. One Protestant church leader told um, Christianity Today uh, why he had chosen to stay in his home despite sympathizing with the protesters. He said, I wanted to go out with all my heart, but I have been under surveillance by state security for months. I know the authorities are looking for any excuse to arrest me. I believe I can do more here in the trenches than I could uh, I could have done by going onto the streets. Well, the leader who asked to remain anonymous for security reasons wasn't wrong. In the days following the protests and detentions, he acted as a bridge, putting families of detained Christians in his area, including pastors, other church leaders, and rank-and-file members in touch with international advocacy organizations. By contrast, two Berean Baptist pastors in the province of Matanzas, uh, which has um, been one of the hardest hit by COVID-19, decided to march. Uh, one of them, um, in fact, a pair of them, who also work as tutors at the William Carey Biblical Seminary, were violently detained and had been held incommunicado since then. A witness said he saw the authorities set dogs on one of the uh, pastors, um, and it was recorded um, police violence on his uh, phone before he was arrested. Well, in a statement and exhortation to pray sent to uh, two fellow citizens the wife of one of those um, uh, pastors said my my husband yarian and our friend and brother yeremi um, are honorable cuban citizens they have dedicated all of their youth and lives to serve the church and to serve others they are family men loving fathers loving husbands with an impeccable life testimony they are not any kind of delinquent nor are they low lives uh, as those who government um 
who govern this country call them. They are good men. They are men of God, end quote. Well, their wives have not been allowed to communicate with the two pastors who, according to the authorities, were being held in the women's prison, um, but have now been transferred to a maximum security prison. On the 15th of July, the women who um, told that their husband's cases had been turned over to the public prosecutor's office and on the 19th of July, which was a Monday, they received news that the two men will face criminal charges, overcrowded and unhygienic conditions in the prison and across the country in the midst of the pandemic have led to concern for the well-being of all those in detention. And the families of the pastors are particularly concerned, uh, given that uh, one of them is still recovering from a bad case of COVID-19 and the other suffers from severe asthma. Um, in what appears to be another attempt to pressure the family uh, their young son was evicted from their home on Sunday, the 18th of July. The landlord told Salazar that state security had threatened to confiscate the home if he did not throw them out with nowhere to go. She and her son have taken refuge in their church. So this is just a brief glimpse at uh, how the church is being impacted and the role the church is playing, certainly in calling parishioners and um, members to pray. And the fact that this whole um, season of protest was preceded by uh, a series of uh, prayers held by the church, sensing the uh, the tension that was building in communities where they minister. So as we consider what's happened there, whether or not the protests continue, the prosecution certainly does. We need to remember to pray for the church that it would remain effective and have wisdom in how to proceed in ministering in their respective communities. Well, in other unrelated news, Senator Rand Paul said Dr. Fauci imitates scientists from contradicting him um, because he controls all the funds. Scientists with different uh, opinions about COVID-19 organs, uh, origins rather, um, than Dr. Fauci keep it to themselves because uh, the top disease expert controls much of their funding. That's a quote from Senator Rand Paul speaking um, on Tuesday night. He subjected Fauci to pretty stiff questioning. We talked about yesterday during a Senate hearing. It was chaired by Democrat Amy Klobuchar of uh, Minnesota earlier in the day with Fauci uh, quibbling with the senator's uh, definition of gain of function research, which the lawmaker said came from a document sourced by another epidemiological expert. Well, the senator went on to urge Fauci, the head of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, to reconsider prior testimony, denying that uh, the NIH or the NIAID uh, in particular had funding endeavors at the Wuhan lab where many believe COVID-19 originated, citing federal perjury laws. Well, we talked about that yesterday, so I won't um, rehearse it all. But he said he read aloud the NIH's definition of gain of function and uh, as well as scholarly paper from a cellular biology expert working at Rutgers University in New Jersey, which described Wuhan lab officials, uh, Dr. Shi uh, Zhangli's work as a textbook definition of such experimentation. All Dr. Fauci could do was sputter and call me a liar, but he never at any point in time addressed any of the facts that we laid out that the money he was given uh, giving to Wuhan was indeed for gain of function. That question remains open. In other developments, the doctor of the and the senator um, exchanged barbs during this um, back and forth in the Senate yesterday about gain of function research in the hearing on the Delta variant, which is sweeping the nation. 
Meanwhile, Hannity goes so far as to say Dr. Fauci and the National Institutes of Health may have played a role in the development of COVID-19, which is why the question was asked originally. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Abbott is calling out Democrats' disaster of a trip fleeing Austin for D.C., saying um, constituents are getting upset. And of course, it has become a an event in which COVID-19 has struck six of the members of that uh, delegation, um, members of um, the staffs of some uh, members of the Senate and the House, and they exposed some members of the administration as well. Meanwhile, Marco Rubio contests the claim that the U.S. embargo is destabilizing Cuba, saying the only blockade is its government. Well, the senator uh, turned back claims by Democrats who followed Black Lives Matter and blamed the decades-long U.S. embargo on Cuba for sparking the recent historic protests. Rubio spoke from the Senate floor on Tuesday, where he contended that people who call the embargo cruel either don't know what they're talking about or are liars. It's a word that's being bandied about quite a bit in Washington. Rubio spoke from the Senate floor on Tuesday, where he contended that people who call the embargo cruel either don't know what they're talking about or they're liars. Uh, There is uh, only one blockade in Cuba, and it is the blockade that the regime has imposed on its people. Earlier this month, pro-democracy protesters took to the streets across the island uh, to call for human rights and basic necessities. Black Lives Matter posted a statement that uh, this last week that blamed the U.S. embargo for the country's instability and credited the Cuban government for historically granting black revolutionaries asylum. In other developments, Washington, D.C. removed Cuba Libre street paintings from in front of the Cuban embassy. And Marco Rubio says Russia is already in Cuba. The Diaz Canal uh, regime lost its legitimacy to govern. President Biden may send more staff to the U.S. embassy in Havana to support the Cuban people, according to senior administration officials. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break, but we will continue to wind our way through the day's news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Chicago family is blasting the city, saying they're moving after their daughter, their baby girl, was shot in the head. That was this last weekend. The Salt Lake City mayor and city council declared racism a public health crisis. And Jeff Bezos is being roasted for thanking Amazon employees and customers for paying for his space flight, saying... I'd like a refund. Well, the Bucks captured their first NBA title since 1971, defeating the Suns in Game 6. And the 2021 Olympics are turning into a $20 billion bust for Japan. The United Airlines posted a $434 million quarterly loss, but revenue was up. Apple is going all in on 5G technology. Well, next year, Jeff Bezos is giving $100 million to Joss Anders and Van Jones after the Blue Origin rocket flight. And the State Department is rejecting the um, Israel boycott movement amid the Ben and Jerry sales ban. This is a statement from a family member who communicated with a family member in Cuba. The government has started putting up concentration camps to hold the prisoners who will be tried for treason. You're looking at people that have absolutely nothing to lose. They were already starving to death. So the idea is um, they're out there. They're already going to die. They might as well die fighting for freedom, says a family member of a Cuban protester inside the country. 
Well, California appellate court ruled on Friday that a provision in a state law passed four years ago mandating that certain health care workers use transgender pronouns as a violation of free speech protected by the First Amendment. Well, California's third district court of appeals upended Senate Bill 219, which is um, in part forced nursing home workers to use preferred transgender pronouns and names for patients. Notably, violators of the law could be charged with a misdemeanor and subject to punishment of a one thousand dollar fine or even up to one year in jail, according to the California Family Council. Well, the site, um, uh, the Washington Blade reported the court in a unanimous three to zero decision struck down this provision of the LGBTQ long term care facility residence bill of rights created by Senate Bill 219 in 2017. Well, a per- pertinent portion of the law, according to the California Legislative Information Office, among other things, the bill would make it unlawful, except as specified for any long term care facility to take specified actions wholly or partially on the basis of a person's actual or perceived sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression or human Uh, immunodeficiency virus HIV status, including, among others, willfully and repeatedly failing to use a resident's preferred name or pronouns after being cleared, uh, clearly informed of the preferred name or pronouns or denying admission to a long term care facility, transferring or refusing to transfer a resident within a facility or to another facility or discharging or evicting residents from a facility. Well, the pronoun provision, the court said, is a content based restriction of speech that does not survive strict scrutiny and burden speech more than is required. The pronoun provision is at issue here, tests the limits of the government's authority to restrict pure speech that, while potentially offensive or harassing to the listener, does not necessarily create a hostile environment. That was written by Associate Justice Elena Duarte, according to the Associated Press. The judge italicized potentially and necessarily. Well, refusing to use preferred transgender pronouns may be disrespectful, discourteous and insulting, the judge went on to say, but it allows others to express an ideological disagreement with another person expressed gender identity. Well, taking offense challenged the law back in December 2017, according to California Family Council. The case was brought by Llewellyn Law Office, Attorney Uh, David Llewellyn, on behalf of several unnamed clients and is challenging the law as unconstitutionally vague and overboard, um, the uh, site noted. Senate Bill 219 sponsor um, Democrat Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco said in a statement that the court's decision is disconnected from the reality facing transgender people, adding that misgendering someone is straight up harassment. My guess is it will be appealed. Well, just Monday, um, I noted that there was a 20 percent increase in American deaths in 2020. Yesterday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that U.S. life expectancy dropped by a year and a half in 2020, the biggest single year decline since World War II. The coronavirus pandemic most certainly played a role uh, and the dominant role in this change. But it's a lot more complicated than merely people dying of a novel virus. In fact, a large factor was the the policies implemented to address the virus. 
Widespread lockdowns led to economic devastation and social isolation. That, in turn, contributed to a 30 percent spike in overdose deaths in 2020, as well as a big rise in suicides, including a drastic increase in attempts by teenagers. Then there were policies like New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's order to put COVID-infected individuals in nursing homes, which led to thousands of deaths there. Would those people have died in 2020 anyway without the governor's order? Well, we'll never know. But that brings up an interesting point about COVID itself. The medium age of death from coronavirus was older than life expectancy. Our national policy should have been focused on taking care of these more vulnerable among us rather than locking everyone down and causing more harm. We didn't do a particularly good job of protecting the elderly, the veteran journalist Britt Hume recently said. Uh, We've had a high death toll disproportionately among the elderly. And what we did uh, to deal with that is instead to quarantine the elderly and make the most strenuous uh, possible effort to protect them. We quarantined the healthy as well, shut down the economy, shut down the schools, uh, and with uh, incalculable damage to children, to their education, to their mental health, and all the rest of it. And, of course, the toll from uh, that in terms of mental health issues and failed education and all the rest, uh, we won't know for some years, but we know it's serious. So this is about as badly handled as any public policy issue I can remember, end quote. What alternatives were available given what we thought we knew at the time remains an open question as well. Meanwhile, the news media has uh, uh, was obliged to highlight the racial component of the life expectancy report. According to CNBC, Hispanics saw the biggest drop in life expectancy last year, followed by African-Americans. But there's also another fact. Hispanic Americans usually have a longer life expectancy than non-Hispanic, black or white uh, people. Uh, the CDC says 90% of the decline for Hispanics was due to COVID-19, while the virus accounts for just 59% of the decline among blacks. And as it turns out, another reason for the decline in life expectancy was the fact that the murder rate spiked by an estimated 25%. Uh, who were the victims of this increase? Often urban blacks killed by other urban blacks following the grossly politicized death of George Floyd. So if there's a racial element here, it's not an uh, interracial one. It, in other words, it's uh, certainly not systematic racism among whites. Whatever might be said of the decline in life expectancy among Americans, it's undeniable that political decisions and gamesmanship played an outsized role. Well, liberals are up in arms over the decision by a federal judge preventing the Biden administration from reinstating the amnesty program known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals for new applicants, although the program may continue for those uh, in the country already. This is a very important court decision in slowing the trend toward an authoritarian executive. It says that a president cannot simply ignore existing immigration law outlining um Uh, who may uh, legally enter the country and grant administrative amnesty and government benefits to whomever he wants, which is precisely what President Obama did and had stated uh, previous that he did not have the authority to do. So it's rather interesting. The courts have now affirmed what he said initially. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court ruled Thursday that federal laws banning firearm dealers from selling handguns to customers under the age of 21 were unconstitutional. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit said in the decision that there were uh, was no reason to treat the Second Amendment any differently from other constitutional rights citizens enjoy no later than the age of 18. The court ruled that 18-year-olds possess Second Amendment rights 
and the federal government failed to justify its infringements on those rights under the appropriate level of scrutiny. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from Peter Jasek, author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. That's coming up after the top of the hour, news and traffic. Well, from the Wall Street Journal, um, the Democrats are spend their spending plan far surpasses the three point five trillion dollars we already know about. Uh, they've provided few details of what they plan to include in Senator Bernie Sanders three point five trillion dollar budget proposal. And now we know why the real cost is closer to five to five point five trillion dollars or more, according to an independent analysis by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which keeps an eye on fiscal matters. The budget resolution fact sheet Democrats circulated last week includes only a bare bones description of the bill's major programs for tax credits, new entitlements, health care, climate and housing. Some categories include revealing a, a, a caveat. Uh, the duration of each program uh, enactment will be determined based on scoring and committee input. Well, that's Washington speak for admitting the budget will be built on uh, the phony assumption and gimmicks that, well, it'll turn up. Well, Democrats know their uh, proposed tax hikes and uh, pay fors won't come close to fully funding every major program that the president has asked for. As Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer claimed. The Wall Street Journal has more on that. And Democrats are trying to uh, get this passed before Republicans can read the whole thing. And the GOP is resisting. In fact, they prevented it from moving forward earlier today. Well, Ben and Jerry is tough on Israel, but pretty soft on China. Uh, The Washington Free Beacon editors point out in a move that perfectly captures how left wing activism is increasingly bleeding into naked anti-Semitism. Ben and Jerry said that selling ice cream in the West Bank is inconsistent with our values. Later, look no further than Ben and Jerry's partnership with Unilever, which acquired the ice cream company in 2000. There is no comparison between Israeli policy in the West Bank and the practices of the world's greatest human rights abusers. Unilever happily does business everywhere from occupied northern Cyprus to occupied Tibet and Xinjiang, home of the Uyghur concentration camps. We won't hold our breath for the ice cream boycott of China or Russia, but hey, there are no Jews in Xinjiang, at least not that we know of. Nikki Haley says woke companies are just as ex, uh, just an extension of today's far left. They pretend to stand up for human rights by taking up causes that fit their worldview and ignoring ones that don't like embracing BDS while staying silent on the abuse of communist China. And on Twitter, even New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio criticized the Democrat-friendly Ben and Jerry's. Well, U.K. COVID numbers have skyrocketed, but deaths remain low. The U.S. government issued a warning against travel to Britain, the Washington Post says. And Scott Gottlieb says COVID cases continue to rise sharply in the U.K. as Delta sweeps through, but hospitalizations and deaths continue to be decoupled from the rising spread when viewed relative to similar points in other waves of infection, reflecting protection of most vulnerable through vaccination. Well, Hugh Hewitt points out he looks at the effectiveness of the vaccine and the need to stay vigilant as this thing isn't over. Migrant uh, migrant COVID cases in the Rio Grande Valley surged 900 percent while many are turned away. Many others get through. And a Twitter user has threatened J.K. Rowling uh, with a pipe bomb. Her reaction was the 
the um, highlight, though, as trans activists are triggered by her every word from the story. The Harry Potter author, now 55, shared a screenshot of the now deleted tweet as evidence of the hate mail she received since expressing her controversial opinions about gender last year. I wish you a very nice pipe bomb in the mailbox. The message from uh, Twitter user Queen um, Queen Regard, uh, who has since deleted their account, said, to be fair, when you can't get a woman sacked, arrested or dropped by her publisher and canceling her only made her book sales go up. There's really only one place to go, Rowling tweeted in response. Well, under the new NCAA rules, an Alabama quarterback earned nearly $1 million, and he's yet to start a game. The U.S. gymnastics team has bailed on Tokyo's Olympic Village as COVID-19 spreads. They're choosing to stay in their hotel where we can control the athletes and our safety better in a hotel setting. Well, inflation concerns leave GOP supporters of Biden's bipartisan infrastructure framework on an island. Meanwhile, Chuck Schumer plans to argue that the infrastructure plan deters uh, inflation. And after conservative backlash, the Department of Education is scaling back on critical race theory plans. But it's ultimately just smoke and mirrors, the Federalist points out. Well, shades of Clinton, Joe Biden apparently is using a private email um, uh, server um, government information uh, to send government information to Hunter Biden and uh, Google critic Jonathan Cantor is going to be nominated to lead the Department of Justice antitrust division. Well, the Biden administration won't sanction China for hacking U.S. servers, according to the Free Beacon. And by the way, nearly a decade ago, Chinese hackers breached U.S. pipelines and could have imposed physical consequences, the FBI announced. Well, the U.S. and Germany reached an appeasement deal to Putin's pipeline project, empowering him to hold that uh, that capacity over the heads of Europeans in the future. Well, the Delta variant accounts for 83 percent of Sequence virus uh, samples, according to The Washington Times, and at 67 percent, Johnson and Johnson vaccine is less effective against the Delta variant. Well, thanks to covid drugs and lockdowns, life expectancy in 2020 saw the biggest drop since World War II. Housing inventory grows for the first time in over a year. But the housing prices, well, they're quite high. A judge has blocked an Arkansas law banning most abortions. A similar Mississippi law is already Supreme Court bound. And in a First Amendment win, a California appellate court says the law mandating trans pronoun use by health care workers is a violation of free speech laws. Progender dysmorphia activists threatened to beat, rape and assassinate and bomb J.K. Rowling for her women's bathroom comments. Well, on this day in history, 1834. Uh, Cyrus Hall McCormick receives a patent for his reaping machine. 1964, civil rights worker uh, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman and James Cheney are slain in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Their bodies would be found buried in an earthen dam six weeks later. Forty one years later, on this date, Edgar Ray Killen, an 80 year old former Ku Klux Klansman, would be found guilty of manslaughter in those killings. He would be sentenced to 60 years in prison. Again, 80 years old at that time, 40 years after the event took place. 1982, on this day in history, a jury in Washington, D.C., finds John Hinckley Jr. not guilty by reason of insanity in the shootings of President Ronald Reagan, police officer uh, Thomas Delhanty, 
Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy and White House Press Secretary James Brady. 1989, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that burning the U.S. flag is free speech and political protest is protected by the First Amendment. 1997, the Women's NBA or WNBA debuts with a game between the New York Liberty and the L.A. Sparks. On this day in history, 20, uh, rather 2004, uh, the first private manned space flight is completed by the craft Spaceship Spaceship One. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that states can force out-of-state retailers to collect sales taxes on online purchases by their residents. Actually, I have another couple. 2018, Charles Krauthammer, a Pulitzer Prize-winning conservative columnist and member of the Fox News family, dies at 68 much, uh, much missed. And finally, 2019, President Trump confirms he called off a retaliatory attack on Iran in response to the downing of a U.S. drone 10 minutes before the strike, saying the number of expected casualties was not proportionate to what Tehran did. Well, with mounting criticism over reports that the U.S. has struck a deal with Germany to allow the controversial Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to go ahead, the State Department on Tuesday continued to maintain that its approach to the issue was better than that of the Trump administration. But Senator Ted Cruz slammed the president over the reported agreement, saying, if true, this will be a generational geopolitical win for President Vladimir Putin and a catastrophe for the United States and our allies. President Biden is defying U.S. law and has utterly surrendered to Putin, Cruz pointed out. One of two Republicans who authored sanctions legislation in 2019 that prompted a suspension of work on the pipeline through most of last year. It only resumed after the 2020 election. Decades from now, Russian dictators will still be reaping billions from Biden's gift. And Europe will still be subject to Russian energy blackmail, he said. We always knew Biden was in bed with Putin. Now they're spooning. Mm. Well, in May, the Biden administration chose to waive sanctions against the project's central figures, arguing that the pipeline had been too close to completion by the time it took office for sanctions to have made any difference. Interestingly enough, they ended the uh, pipeline here in the U.S. Apparently, it wasn't too close to uh, completion uh, to allow it to be completed. By the way, the uh, owners of that pipeline uh, who invested significantly are suing the United States. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up in just a moment. And when we come back for the second hour of today's program, Peter Jasek, author of ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. December 10th. 2015 is a day that my guest, Peter Yashik, will never forget. He was in Khartoum, Sudan, ready to go home to his wife and children in the Czech Republic when he was forcefully detained by airport security and accused of being a spy. Well, that was only the start of his prison journey. Because of his work helping persecuted believers in Sudan through Voice of the Martyrs, he was imprisoned in Sudan with very little food, no real medical care, yet his faith in God was stronger than ever. But the challenges were mounting. He's uh, made record of that experience in his latest book to be released tomorrow, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. And this story that releases on the 2nd of June, he tells that story, the opposition he faced no matter where he turned, who his roommates were, and how God came alongside and strengthened him through this challenge. 
Well, my guest, Peter uh, Yashik, is the son of a pastor who was persecuted in communist Czechoslovakia, as well as equipped to join the voice um, of the martyrs um, in 2002 to help persecuted Christians in hostile areas and restricted nations. Today, Peter serves with Voice of the Martyrs as their global ambassador, traveling around the world to speak about his imprisonment in Sudan and encouraging believers to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in prayer and in action. We are so uh, thankful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, let's uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about the nation of Sudan at the time the events that you write about took place. Um, describe for us the persecution that Sudanese believers were facing. If you visit the country of Sudan, if you would have visited that uh, country at that time, you know you would have uh, you would could uh, get easily the false impression, you know, that uh, there is a certain level of uh, freedom because you would see churches from various denominations, you would go see people going in and coming out. Uh, but uh, the major problem starts when uh, the person uh, would uh, follow Christ's Great Commission, which means to make disciples of all people, uh, including the Muslim majority. You know, otherwise, if uh, Christians just uh, uh, had uh, were practicing their Christian life inside the churches, uh, they could live uh, more or less a free life. You know, they were certainly experiencing some persecution, especially if they were not well enough to send their children to uh, private schools. They would have to memorize Quran with the Muslim fellow students. Uh, they would suffer uh, some persecution, uh, you know, from the employees. Uh, I mean, employers, because you know the uh, em- Christian employees would always um, have more difficulties uh, to find jobs, uh, you know, compared to their Muslim neighbors. Uh, but the major problem started when Christians. Uh, uh, started to share the gospel with uh, their uh, Muslim fellow neighbors, which is illegal even now in Sudan. Uh, And at that time was uh, highly, uh, they were highly persecuted for that. And, uh, you know, I heard about that persecution uh, when I attended a conference in uh, Ethiopia in October 2015. And I uh, heard compelling testimonies, you know, exactly of uh, what happens when there is a person like a Muslim background believer. You know, it is illegal mm-hmm. still now, and it was illegal at that time, uh, to convert from Islam to any other religion. And I heard, I saw pictures of an injured uh, young Muslim background believer student that, uh, you know, became a believer during his studies in Khartoum University. And I also saw pictures of churches, uh, uh, church buildings completely demolished just because their pastors were actively encouraging their church members to follow Christ's Great Commission. So that was what brought me there at that time. And unfortunately, the situation is still very similar, even though, you know, we hear some news about some changes, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, President Bashir was removed by... You should know that the situation is also, uh, you know, very interesting, because the guy who led the coup uh, was um, uh, Ibn Uf, which was a cousin 
of uh, President Bashir and married to his daughter. So what can you expect? Mm -hmm. You know, what uh, can what good can come out of this uh, uh, coup? You know, and then the power was handed over to people that were very cruel, uh, that are actually on the list of the ICC as uh, wanted criminals. In your book, you point out that for three decades, the Sudanese government had targeted Christians along with those who aren't ethnically Arab for extermination. So this was extermination. That is the, the most extreme. Uh, and since the uh, former president um, rose to power in 1989 through a military coup and established a strict form of Islamic law throughout the country, his brutal regime intimidated, arrested, imprisoned, and tortured Christians. You had traveled there as a representative of uh, voice of the Martyrs, to meet with persecuted Christians, to do research. What was the purpose of your trip that was only expected to take four days? Yeah, you know, I uh, you should uh, understand that when I visited countries uh, restricted, like country of Sudan, I could not come as an official representative of uh, mm -hmm. the organization called VOM because, you know, I always had to come uh, secretly, you know, unnoticed, you know, like a tourist because if they would know that there is uh, someone who wants to document uh, the persecution of Christians, they would immediately probably ban me from entering the country. So, uh, yeah, I had good plan for these four days. I had secret meetings. I had uh, uh, everything carefully prepared. But, of course, you know, in country of Sudan, it was not very difficult uh, to uh, follow a Westerner, you know, in the country that has, uh, you know, so many secret policemen, uh, you know, that are work secret policemen that are uh, going back and forth, you know, they're monitoring the foreigners that's very easy for them to monitor and of course i could expect that but uh, i w i thought that you know my mission was completed i have uh uh, accomplished what I wanted. I met and interviewed the uh, injured Muslim background believer. I also uh, visited the sites of the demolished churches, even though it was uh, it had to be at night, and I could not uh, uh, take photos because uh, you know with the flash I would be immediately noticed. But I had that good uh, you know feeling that my mission was completed. But uh, only when I was holding the boarding passes in my hand, that was the moment when I got arrested by secret police. Mm. Now, the, the pictures and the material that you just described, I understand they were encrypted on your computer, so they would not be easily accessed. When you were um, arrested at the airport, what were you told you were being charged with? What was the purpose of that arrest? I was not uh, told much uh, when I was arrested in the airport because, you know, uh, those people spoke very poor English. You know, I tried French, uh, German, Russian, you know, all the languages that I speak. And you know, my Arabic at that time was not fluent, so I could not speak in Arabic. Uh, but, uh, you know, they just wanted my computer, my laptop, my cell phone, my camera, video camera. So I understood, you know, that they wanted to search it and I didn't want to give them pass passwords for that so eventually you know um, my uh, the time before the departure was getting shorter and uh, it was obvious that I will miss that flight and then I was uh, transferred to the headquarters of the secret police and then they started the proper interrogation you know with the person who spoke uh, good English 
And then I understood that they were monitoring me, you know, my activities. And of course, you know, um, if you delete some stuff from your laptop, you know, which I or from your camera, you know, it is obvious that uh, uh, that was probably my mistake that I didn't do properly because I was supposed to overwrite the empty space uh, after the deleting the files, you know, uh, especially in my camera with the special software that I had available at the time. But uh, I just deleted them. I did not anticipate such a detailed scrutiny of uh, of my memory card, and of course, you know, then uh, you uh, if you have some other memory cards or sticks or uh, external hard drives, you know, if if it's something that is empty, unless it is uh, rewritten or reformatted or with a special program, uh, there can be always something uh, digged out of it, and that was actually the case. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, uh, this afternoon, we're talking with my guest, Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is available tomorrow, published by Salem Books. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It's not just a book. It is his story told in some detail to give you some indication of what persecuted believers face um, when the enemy captures them and uh, experience imprisonment. Now, you had come to uh, minister to and to learn more about persecuted believers in Sudan. You had just become, as you told us before the break, you had just become one of those persecuted believers. Tell us about your first experience when you were ultimately imprisoned and who your uh, fellow cellmates were. You know, I was after nearly 24 24- hours interrogation in the headquarters of the city police, I was uh, transferred to the first prison. You know, I went through five different prisons in Sudan, but of course, the first one was uh, the first negative experience with being imprisoned, you know, in a foreign country, and that prison was the prison of the secret police. And uh, even though the conditions uh, were very bad, you know, and there was uh, a lot of uh, humidity, mold, and uh, insects, and kinds of uh, uh, things that were very unpleasant, you know, the, uh, what was much more uh, unpleasant was actually that I found, found out uh, the next uh, morning, you know, that I'm actually imprisoned with six members of Islamic State. And I found it very easily because, you know, they asked me about uh, uh, some of the events, you know, what is going on in the world. These people are actually completely cut off from all information from uh, the outside world. There's no radio, no newspaper, no television. And uh, when I told them, you know, that what happened about uh, three weeks before my time in prison, you know, when uh, in Paris uh, during uh, coordinated attacks of Islamic State, uh, uh, 129 people died, were killed actually by Muslim extremists. Uh, they interrupted me and they uh, burst uh, bursted in a celebration uh, of uh, shouting Allahu Akbar for several minutes and uh, hugging each other, rejoicing that 129 29 infidels got killed. That was the moment when I realized that I am amidst of these ISIS people. And of course, later on, they uh, 
clearly identify themselves. I got more information about each individual. You know how, uh, what did they do? You know, um, for instance, you know there were a Libyan guy who, at the age of twelve, uh, was sent by his father to be a person, a bodyguard of Osama bin Laden. You know, and this guy was. Uh, treated with high respect from the other people, and uh, they used to call him a man of sword. And I actually thought that it was this was the title was because of his work with Os uh, Osama bin Laden. But only when he after he was transferred uh, to other cell, I found out that the true reason of him being called a man of sword was not being bodyguard of Osama, but being a member of the, uh, you know, squad that actually beheaded the 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians and one African Christian on the Libyan shore in February of 2015, just a few months before he was with me in the same cell. You know, I could say he, you know, in, in a, a figurative way that he still had the fresh human blood on his hands. And that was very shocking, you know. And not only that, but there were some other conditions like, you know, I have lost um, in the first three months uh, uh, 55 pounds of my body weight. You know, I after one month, they uh, realized that I was actually, when I was transferred to the hospital, that I lost half of my blood. And being heavily anemic and malnutrished, that made the whole um, life in this prison cell with the ISIS guys a lot more complicated and hard and th then now, now I come you know to the point that I realized you know and um, my major concern at first was not that I would die in this prison uh, but that I would l rather lose my sound mind because you know I was witnessing not only a five times per day prayers, but I could not have a Bible. They could have Korans. They were reading Korans, uh, uh, you know, the whole day if they were not sleeping or eating. Uh, and uh, all of that, you know, was um, kind of, you know, uh, war I was worried that I may lose my sound mind. And I started to pray and ask the Lord, you know, please keep my mind sound. You know, I was not that much surprised that I am in prison because, you know, I consider, based on what the Bible teaches about persecution, that persecution is actually an essential part of a Christian life. The Lord Jesus pre was uh, preparing his followers that they will be persecuted, and he didn't promise them that always they will be released from persecution like I was. Uh, he said even some of you will be killed. You know, when you read what Paul was teaching his followers, and he said, uh, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's in 2 Timothy 3.12. So I was teaching others and encouraging others uh, that the persecution is an essential part of the Christian life, so how could I be surprised? But of course, you know, when day uh, by day, week by week, months by months, you know, I started to ask the Lord, how long, Lord, how long I will have to be in this prison? Mm. Uh, in addition to being housed in the same cell, a cell that, as you describe it, was really intended for an individual, but there were several of you there, so the condition in of itself was unbearable. But you were tortured regularly uh, at the glee of your ISIS, um, your Islamic State uh, cellmates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it started with uh, my freedom being of movement in this cell that was 
very crowded. I know it sounds a little bit strange, you know, how could you move, but you can still move in the small space. You know, I was uh, not allowed to cross, uh, you know, when they were, they were walking from one end to the other end. Uh, I was not allowed to speak on my own. I only had, uh, I was supposed to answer their questions. And uh, later on, they started to slander me with bad words. I was not called Peter anymore by them. I was called, you know, Khinzir, in which in Arabic means a filthy pig. And uh, they call me filthy pig, come here, filthy pig, go there, you know. So that was like that, or filthy rat. And uh, shortly after that, they started to uh, slap my face, beat me with their fist to my face. Uh, uh, or later on, they used the wooden stick and they uh, were beating me with the wooden stick. Or they were kicking me with their shoes, with their legs, with their shoes on. and uh, Or they try to invent um, uh, ways uh, how to make my position very uncomfortable that I, when I was released from that position I could not walk I could not stand because of the pain you know after being in a very uncomfortable position for a long time but that all was the moment you know when I realized that uh, you know the words of Apostle Paul that he says in Second um, uh, Corinthians 12:10. he says when I am weak, then I am strong. So when we reach uh, the bottom of our physical or emotional strength, uh, then we can experience the Lord's strength. And I was able to pray for those people. I was able to, um, you know, even turn my other cheek when they were beating me. And I can honestly tell you, it was not me who was able to turn the other cheek. It was actually Christ in me who was able to turn the other cheek to them and also to share the gospel with them. And, I, you know, I was experiencing such a moments of peace, you know, even when, especially actually when I was being beaten by them and their um, effort to, uh, they always came, you know, with new ways of uh, torturing me. And eventually they came with the idea that they will do the waterboarding on me. And, uh, you know, they uh, made everything ready for that. You know, they even convinced the guards to move uh, seven of us from our cell where there was no running water to the other cell, the only cell actually on that floor that had running water so that they could do the waterboarding. You know, they prepared some cloth, you know, that they could cover my faith with and when everything was ready uh, on that morning you know uh, the Lord intervened in the last moment but I have learned was being with these guys you know one other big lesson you know the power of prayer you know I was amidst of my enemies literally not knowing when they will slap me kick me or uh, use the fist to my face or use the wooden stick and, uh, you know, after all the, the five days prayers in the evening, you know, I could say that the nightlife started in the cell. And, uh, you know, they could stay awake till maybe 2 a.m. talking, you know, with each other. And, of course, you know, I was very tired. And at 9 p.m., I was able to peacefully lay down and fall asleep. Uh, and I was amazed, you know, uh, why am I able to fall asleep amidst of my enemies? And that happened every night. And only two months later, when I started to receive letters from my family, I found out why I was able to fall asleep. You know, in my home church, 
people were praying for me. They were fasting. And especially, you know, at 8 p.m., the Czech Republic winter time, uh, people who uh, applied for this uh, special prayer application, you know, their cell phones started to ring with reminders, prayers for Peter. And for one hour, these people went on their knees in the place where they were, and for one hour, they were fervently praying for me. And oh, now the most God. important thing is that the time difference between Czech Republic in winter and Sudan was one hour. So actually, people were praying for 9 p.m. Sudanese time till 10 p.m. And that was the time when I could fall asleep as a result of their fervent and faithful prayers. Praise God. We're going to continue our conversation. Once again, we're talking with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We're going to find out more about how God attended to him during this season of persecution. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and will be available uh, tomorrow. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to understand more about what it is like to be in the presence of one's enemies and as a believer being persecuted and what role God plays and his people play in the midst of all of that, this is an excellent book to uh, uh, to read again available tomorrow. You mentioned that during this time in which you are housed with these ISIS members, they had made the decision that they were going to waterboard you, had managed to uh, move from the cell that you had been in to one where there was running water. Um, but you were rescued out of that situation, uh, and one might find it difficult to see solitary confinement as a rescue, but d- tell us a little bit about uh, your transfer into solitary confinement and whether or not you were able to ultimately have a copy of God's Word. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, taken out of the cell, I had this feeling like when Daniel was uh, taken out from the lion's den. Literally, there was the only difference that, you know, the uh, Lord has kept the mouth of the lions shut and their mouths were widely open when I was taken from their midst. They could not believe that I was taken away. And the next day, was actually, I was punished by being put in solitary confinement, which in one sense, you know, it is considered like a punishment in any prison. And even the ISIS people were afraid of being put into the solitary confinement. You know, one of them told me that he was there for five days and he said, if they would not have released me, I would lose my mind, uh, sound mind. And I said to myself, you know, in one sense, for me, it was the first moment when I had actually uh, free time to uh, speak out loud, to pray out loud, and to walk around. And for me, I considered that moment, the day when I was put on the solitary confinement, like the first liberation inside mm. of the country. Of course, I haven't been tortured by the guards uh, through, uh, they were fr- uh, blowing freezing air on uh, um, in, into my cell, and uh, they took uh, my blanket away from me. So I was literally freezing, but I could experience the Lord's 
physical presence, you know, like a, mm-hmm. you know, warm coat around me in one moment, and uh, spontaneously, the words of my mouth were, my Lord and my God, because, you know, I have felt, you know, that the Lord was with me in the cell, and even my memory started to return, and I was able to uh, start uh, even singing, you know, one song, you know, and that was the song, Dime Be the Glory, you know, this is actually a hymn, you know, that I have memorized when I was probably 15 or 16 years old, and I could not remember the words of this song uh, when I was uh, heavily anemic and malnourished <clears throat> in the first uh, uh, two months uh, being with the ISIS people, because you know my memory was not working normally. When you're uh, when you lose that my that much blood, you know your uh, brain doesn't work normally. But in that moment, when I was for the first night in the solitary confinement, freezing from the cold, you know, uh, my memory w- uh, came back, and I could start singing this hymn, Thine Be the Glory, you know, and the first two verses, and the third one came about maybe th- two or three days later. I'm sure, you know, that the guards, and maybe even the ISIS people, when they heard me singing the whole night, they thought that I got mad the first night in this solitary confinement already. So that was an amazing moment. And, you know, I was, for the first four months, I was praying, and my only prayer was to uh, be released and to go home. And uh, then I was transferred to another prison, uh, and, uh, uh, and and the conditions were much worse there. You know, we were f- maybe sometimes 50 people squeezed in the small room without a toilet, you know, that had maybe 25 uh, square meters. And one night... The Lord has brought another 12 Eritrean refugees and I was led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. That was such a clear guidance of the Holy Spirit that I have experienced, uh, I would say, rarely in my life. But that night it was so obvious. So I went squeezed through the crowd of people to them and I shared the gospel to them and on that night the Lord has touched their hearts and they all were ready to receive Christ so I I encouraged them to pray with me and they all did and all 12 of them committed their lives to Christ and that was a turning point for me Mm. From that moment, I really understood that I had to be in prison exactly four months and one day. Why? Because these people needed to hear the gospel from me. And that changed my whole perspective, you know, on being in prison. And another month later, you know, I was another, because, you know, this uh, encouraged me to share the gospel even with the uh, fellow Muslims after these uh, uh, 12 Eritrean refugees on the next morning, they were actually transferred to the uh, next, uh, another prison, and I could not see them anymore. Uh, But I started to share the gospel with all the other people, even the Muslims, right? And they, uh, I was punished by the guards again by being put in solitary confinement. But that was all in pre- prepared by the Lord. And when I was transferred to the solitary confinement a week later, I have received the most precious gift in my life. You know, the, the representative of the Czech embassy came to visit me and he brought me the Czech Bible. So I was holding the word of God after five months of, of not having it. And I was so hungry after the word of God that I immediately started to read, you know, just standing at the window when the daylight was coming in and I could read from 
uh, 8 in the morning, maybe till 5 p.m., but I finished reading the Bible within three weeks, from Genesis to Revelation. That just documents how hungry I was after the Word of God. You spent 445 days in prison. Um, what you may not have known during that time was that there were those who were praying for you as well as those who were advocating on your behalf for your release. What happened that ultimately resulted in your being released from prison? And looking back, how do you interpret all of these events? First of all, I would like to say that uh, we know that the Lord Jesus is the one who, when he opens, no one can close. When he closes, That's no right. one can open. So I uh, give the credit to the Lord for, you know, his timing and his sovereign will. You know, when readers will read the book from the first pages, they will realize how the Lord was miraculously preparing me for that time two and a half years before this experience, right. right? And I was already shared that how I felt and I how well, late uh, two months later, how I found out uh, why could I fall asleep peacefully when people were praying for me? So I was aware that people were praying for me. You know, later on, I was even aware that many people were uh, not only praying, but they were doing certain activities. They were signing online petition, you know, the uh, civic organization called Citizen Go based in Spain, you know, and they has a worldwide network. They organized a petition of, uh, you know, for our release, and that petition had uh, nearly half a million of signatures uh, from various mm. countries. You know that also the European uh, Parliament issued the resolution uh, demanding uh, uh, our release. You know, when I was uh, in prison already for nearly one year. Uh, the European Parliament issued a resolution demanding our release. And, uh, you know, I was uh, considered like being a spy of Czech Republic. But when the European Parliament issued this uh, resolution demanding our release, I was actually reclassified as a spy of the European Union. So that had this kind of uh, uh, interesting impact. But for us, knowing, you know, that uh, even from letters or from contacts with our families, it was tremendously encouraging uh, to know that not only that people were praying for us, but also they were doing some activities. Uh, they were not silent. They were writing letters to uh, Sudanese embassies around the world. And of course, you know, uh, I have not received those letters that were sent uh, either to me directly to prison. I only received letters sent through the lawyer or through my family. But uh, the fact uh, that we knew about the uh, body of Christ, about the church around the world that were praying uh, for us and demanding our release was extremely encouraging. I remember, you know, that when I found out about uh, my home church uh, uh, and their prayers that actually caused me to be able to fall asleep at 9 p.m. every time. I was actually convicted by the Holy Spirit. You know, how frequently someone asked me for prayers. And I said this kind of uh, usual typical Christian social phrase, you know, yes, yes, I will keep you in my prayers. But I was not uh, literally faithfully doing that. So I made this commitment when I will be released from prison, I will 
do this faithfully. And not only that, I will also encourage many other Christians in the free countries to pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted or who are in prison. And, of course, you know, I uh, knew that persecution is an essential part of the Christian life. But when, uh, you know, I was already in prison like maybe uh, seven months, you know, I was um, silently maybe feeling sorry for myself that I'm already in prison for seven months. But the Lord showed me before my spiritual eyes, you know, the pictures of three Eritrean pastors that have been in prison, two of them in 2004, one of them in 2005. So they were already 11 or 12 years in prison. And I was feeling feeling sorry for myself, you know, that I'm in prison seven months. So after this experience, I deliberately started to pray for them and not only for them, for other Christians. You know, my uh, prison uh, cell walls were actually divided into different segments where I have uh, visualized, you know, some people from various countries, from China, from Nigeria, from Eritrea or Central Asia. And I was uh, praying faithfully for them uh, because I, and that actually helped me to uh, uh, experience and view my burden as an easy one compared to what they had to go through because of their persecution. Well, once again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and is available for purchase tomorrow. I wish we had more time because there's so much more that could be said about your experience that challenges all of us to take seriously our connection with believers who are suffering persecution for their faith and our connection with them, that we have the opportunity to superintend, to pray for them. Uh, and to intercede for them. Uh, Peter Yashek, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. God bless you. you. You too. Again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. Uh, I would highly encourage you to read the book to gain an understanding of what many of our brothers and sisters are facing for the sake of and the cause of Christ. We need to take a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you know, the Olympic Games are about to begin, and I have learned since I uh, asked the question a week ago whether or not there's going to be an opening ceremony. Apparently, there will be an opening ceremony, the nature of which I'm not entirely sure, but that's always really fun to watch, all the nations marching in and so on. Anyway, when Tokyo Motor Corporation said this week that it wouldn't run any ads in Japan tied to the Olympics, it sent a message louder than any television commercial about the host nation's grim mood. And sadly, you know, the host nation, there's considerations for them. But my consideration, my concern is for the athletes who have for years now um, trained in order to make it to the Olympic Games. And now and this isn't the first time they've been disrupted for one reason or another. You might remember several years ago. Uh, when the United States and several other nations did not compete in the Olympic Games because Russia had invaded the Ukraine. There are reasons uh, that this has happened, and it's not unprecedented. But Tokyo is uh, Japan's most valuable company. This is the uh, Tokyo Motor Corporation and a global Olympic sponsor. The top rank uh, shared by only 13 others worldwide. Well, U.S. audiences spent millions of dollars on a Super Bowl commercialized uh, commercial, rather featuring the Olympic rings 
But in Japan, any link to the games was too sensitive for the automaker to advertise. And that spells real trouble for uh, Japan um, that is hosting the games. In fact, one headline read, the 2021 Olympics is turning into a $20 billion bust for Japan. And that's a sad, uh, sad scenario. The Olympics open on Friday, a year late and during a COVID-19 state of emergency in Tokyo. Anticipation, expectations for an economic windfall have largely evaporated. So this is uh, definitely a bust for Japan. Stadiums and arenas that cost uh, over $7 billion to build or renovate for the games will be mostly empty after spectators were banned. Japan wanted the Tokyo Olympics to show the country is still a global force, despite its declining population and a maturing economy eclipsed by China. Well, the games would also show how Japan rebounded from a devastating tsunami in 2011. Instead, the games have compounded a malaise over the pandemic that's put its leaders under pressure to keep uh, his job. Well, the prime minister said that he was confident that the extensive measures to keep the public away from the event would prevent the spread of infection and that the country will still benefit from a huge global television uh, audience. We'll hope that's the case. I decided that the Olympics can go ahead without compromising the safety of the Japanese people. Uh, Mr. Shuga said in an interview, the simplest things and the easiest things uh, thing is uh, to quit, he added. But the government's job is to tackle challenges and tackle a challenge they have. As you know, some athletes have come uh, come up uh, positive for COVID-19. The Olympic Village has been abandoned by some U.S. athletes. And so uh, what the 2021 Olympic Games uh, will ultimately be, uh, how many athletes who could have been gold medal winners or for that matter, bronze or silver medal winners uh, who do not or cannot compete. We'll just have to wait and see. But the Olympic Games opening ceremony starts on Friday. Well, today is National Junk Food Day, which means you now have the perfect excuse to enjoy some guilty pleasure snacks. According to WebMD, junk food is usually high in calories but low in nutritional value. And when you eat junk food, junk being the operative word, you're likely to feel well less full than you would if you were eating nutritious food. Although it's not recommended to eat too much junk food for various health reasons, we all know, um, including obesity and heart disease, it is okay to enjoy treats like sodas, chips, popcorn, candy, cookies, sugary cereals every now and then, according to Healthline. Now, I have um, essentially sworn off of pretty much all of those things. There's a rare exception when I find a sugar-free version or a low-carb version. Well, I might indulge in some small thing, but some junk foods have long uh, storied histories. So if you want to celebrate National Junk Food Day with a special snack, check out uh, these bites that were released the uh, decade you were born. Now you have to pick which decade you were born. 1940. Plenty of candies and sodas were invented and released in the 1940s, including Mountain Dew and M&Ms. One of the biggest snacks invented Cheetos. I have to tell you, that is one of my all-time favorites, Cheetos. According to Insider, Cheetos were invented in Dallas, Texas by Fritos founder Charles Elmer Doolin in 1948. 1950, the 50s brought treats including the hot tamales, candles, or rather candies, in 1950, Eggo waffles and cheese whiz in 1953, Trick cereal in 1954. In 1953, Kraft introduced cheese whiz. That's according to NPR, Cheese Whiz. I don't think I've ever had it, but just seeing it is enough. 1960, one of the biggest snacks of the 1960s that we will uh, still enjoy today are Doritos, which always smelled like, well, socks to me. 
Anyway, uh, they were invented in 1966 at a Frito-Lay restaurant in Disneyland, according to Insider. Other treats invented in the 60s include oatmeal cream pies, Starburst, Sprite, and uh, Pop-Tarts. 1970. In the 70s, Wally Amos launched famous Amos chocolate chip cookies, and Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield uh, opened Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Jelly Belly also started making their own jelly beans in 76. The 1980s uh, saw the launch of the microwave popcorn craze, the release of Diet Coke, and the invention of Bagel Bites and Sour Patch Kids. The 90s, um, Gushers were launched in 1991. The famed uh, Dunkaroos were first released in 92 by Betty Crocker. Meanwhile, Hershey's released its Cookies and Cream Bar in 93. And in the year 2000, two major innovations in junk food came in 2004 with the release of the Take 5 Candy Bar. I have no idea. And the launch of Mountain Dew Baja Blast exclusively at Taco Bell's, according to the Daily Meal. Now, today also happens to be National Hot Dog Day, and there are some places around the area that are offering some special deals. Um, I think uh, 7-Eleven, uh, Auntie Anne's, um, Dog House, H-A-U-S, Sonic Drive-Ins have National Holiday uh, a Hot Dog Day offers, so if you're interested, you can check that out. Junk Food Day, Hot Dog Day, it'll take you the rest of the week to recuperate if you indulge in that. All right, we're out of time. We're going to uh, say thank you to James Blend and... Clark Hilton, producer and engineer of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.